We've all got to be a bit quiet today because the cat's asleep. Noah on Rachel's lap. If we make a lot of noise, do you think it'll dig his pins into Rach and then we'd have a laugh? <laughs> it's I quite a vicious that. cat, Noah. Yeah. You only have to touch it in the wrong place, Rach. Yeah. Like there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very selective cat, and I have been selected for him to sit on my lap. You're so honoured. Very honoured, yeah. Noah. Thank you. Now, it's going to be sound effects special this week. Wake up, Noah! <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> didn't work. No. <laughs> because Farmer Phil's off on his favourite outing. It's a Farmer Phil trip-off. Well, hey. Tell us about it, Phil. Well, you decided that you ought to learn a bit more about ploughing. <laughs> no, so, I didn't. No, I didn't. <laughs> you came and had a ride in the tractor while we were ploughing. And you were telling me about John Deere's. Yeah, John Deere's, great tractors. Well, my John Deere, my tractor, is an American one. And it's got what they call a Waterloo engine in it. Is it a left-hand driver? You no, know, right in the middle, <laughs> Mrs. <laughs> A Waterloo engine? Yes, made in Waterloo in Illinois in America, or at least I think it's in Illinois. Oh, you can tell us, listener, you can tell us if it's Illinois. You can record a response to this podcast on my blog. As long as you've got a microphone on your computer, you can click into my blog and press my chingo and tell us what you think. (laughs) Now, although we've got a planned podcast this week, what do we normally talk about for our new listeners? Well, we normally talk about all sorts of issues that's happening around Wiggly Wigglers and outside of Wiggly Wigglers. We normally send Ricard out on a roving report of wherever he is during the week. He could be at a school, um, planting a pond, um, he could be at an authority, he could be anywhere. And you do demos, don't you, Rach? Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure about Ricardo being an authority, but anyway, we, we comment on rural life in general, what we get up to in and around Blakemere and Herefordshire and why we get up to it. And then, of course, we had the honey cast the other day, so we get into a bit of sort of rural food and interest and that sort of thing. Specifically, my highlights have been the Tim Smith interview, the calf post-mortem and Rach making logs for the fire. <laughs> the log fire last <laughs> week, oh no. On we go, because this week we don't have any of that drivel. We have pure farming talk. It's the wiggly Plowcast. I'm just walking up the field to meet Farmer Phil, who's coming towards me with his John Deere tractor and plough. He's ploughing diagonally, actually, so I'll ask him why that is. And I'm in a field called the Lawns which I'll also ask him about. I'm actually walking up on the most glorious autumnal day and I'm walking towards Tiberton to a place that was called Tiberton Court. But anyway, I'm just about to get there. The scrunching that you can hear is me walking on the stubble. So this was a crop of wheat which has been combined and years ago they used to burn the stubble but now that's not the ticket so it's being ploughed in you can probably just start to hear the tractor in the distance
so he's just coming towards me now the one set of wheels are in the furrow so he's sort of lopsided and he's heading up the field and he's just doing a corner at the moment so there'll be a fairly short run and he'll stop and then I can get on board and find out all about it watch this space listener this is the chance to find out about ploughing rock on dotted around in it and that's because most of it was parkland grass with uh, specimen trees that went with uh, the big house which was Tiverton Court and you can see just over there the walled garden which was a massive walled garden compared to ours at Blakemere probably twice the size maybe even three times the size um, and the Tiverton Court the big house is no longer here and that was taken down I think probably in the 40s or 50s as a result of roof tax which made it very expensive to have stately homes which is effectively what it was and so they took it down and smashed it up and laid it along one of our other fields as a track so that that's quite interesting because we plough up lumps of marble and various bits of cut stone. What a pity! It is a pity, but it was a political fact of life at that time. There were a lot of stately homes got demolished or the roofs taken off and then allowed to deteriorate um, just because they had this tax purely based on the area of roof, hence the name roof tax. And at least the walled garden's still being used. Yep, the walled garden's still used as a market garden. Roger Huffer grows uh, vegetables in there for his market stall that he's got in Hereford, so that that's quite a nice tie-up. Nice beans. Yeah. Absolutely, cracking beans. And um, his family live in what were the gardener's cottages, which are next door to the wall garden, and that, there are still the remnants of all the greenhouses and hot houses that went with supplying a, a big house with all the vegetables and fruits that they could want. So. That, there might even have been a pineapple bed, which was de rigueur of the time. If you could grow pineapples, you could grow anything. Ah, a little handy hint on how to grow pineapples. Plenty of horse muck. Yep, you have your muck underneath. If anyone wants to go and see a working example, what most wonderful trip out is to the Lost Gardens of Heligan and see how they grow their pineapples using hot air from the muck. It's amazing, isn't it? It is fascinating and also there was a lot of competition between the stately homes because as they invited each other over to dinner or had functions, if the host could produce an exotic vegetable or a, a fantastic fruit that he'd grown in his own garden, that was one up so that the position of head gardener was a, a very important position both socially and practically within the hierarchy of the house. Marvellous! Marvellous indeed. <laughs> Another interesting aspect about this field is that on older maps, part of it was called the Ice House Field or the Ice House Coppice. And the reason for that was that when Tiverton Court was built, which was in about 1750, the 
there, there were no fridges obviously in those days so you had larders and cellars which were cool but there was nowhere cold and what they used to do to store meat was they dig a hole in the ground and line it with bricks it probably had a little brick shed over the top of it and in the winter time when the pond froze they'd get all the ice they could and put it down the hole and then they'd put the meat down there with it and it would keep it for that many weeks or months into the springtime a bit like your deep freeze would it probably wouldn't manage it all the year round obviously but it meant that you could have this very cold area and keep meat preserved for that bit extra time hence the name ice house coppice and there is a patch in the middle of this field where we plough up the odd brick which is probably where that was but it's I've you're not going to fall in it with your plough no i think it's long since been filled in so anyway this was wheat wasn't it this is wheat stubble that we're ploughing in here so we tend to only grow uh, two wheat crops in succession before we need what's called a break crop um, so that this was grass seed then we had a crop of wheat and we're now planting the second crop of wheat is that to give the soil different nutrients or to yeah. give it a rest it gives it a rest and it means that you don't get the build up of diseases specific to one crop in the same place just as you would rotate your crops around the garden so you don't grow your brassicas in the same place year on year we rotate the farm crops and the disease we're trying to get round is called take-all which is a root disease of wheat predominantly um, and if you grow more than about two weeks you can go through a period of time where the take-all will actually decimate the wheat crop if you keep going you can get out the other side after about seven or eight years the yield will get back to where you were to start with but if you then have a break crop you're back to square one it's a, it's a rather strange one but we also use break crops to increase the organic matter in the soil if you look at this soil in this field it's very friable very fine there's quite a lot of stone in it but the soil itself is very fine it looks lovely soil it is it's red it, it's red quite a dark red and the reason that it's so friable is that having grass in our rotation, in our case grass seed, it's got a very high organic matter content and that's what gives it this friability um, and it, it helps, it makes it easier to work obviously but it increases the fertility as well. So you're not actually ploughing very deep are you? It well, doesn't seem to be. By ploughing standards we actually plough quite a lot deeper than most. We're ploughing about nine or ten inches deep. Right. Traditionally six inches would be considered plenty. The reason that I plough deeper is because I reckon that by having more topsoil, and by that I mean the layer that is regularly cultivated, i.e. that ten inches, I've got, by making that into topsoil, I've got more fertility. And I think our yields bear out that, that theory. And the other reason for ploughing deeper is that it overcomes to a large extent the compaction of the previous year's activities, whether that be driving around collecting the bales up or driving around combining it and so on. Yeah, but there is an argument on the other hand, isn't there? Just as in gardening, there's the 
double dig method, the dig method and the no dig method. And by the way, the no dig method has been proven to um, help your worms much more than the cultivating method. Then in farming, there's also this argument, isn't there? Absolutely. And I know that at Whitfield, I believe, they don't plow. Some and some. There is this current thing against what they call non-inversion tillage or minimum tillage. Um, we have spoken about that before. We have we have had a go about it. And as with all things, whether it's gardening or farming, it's about balance. And the benefits of a plough are that by turning the soil over and burying the weeds that have chitted on the top, you're getting a good clean start for the following crop. Yeah. Now this presumably means that we don't need as many chemical weed killers to kill the weeds in the following crop. Right. And we know that things like worms don't like chemical weed killers much. Some are worse than others, but broadly speaking they don't like them much. And so therefore, is the damage that you do to the worm population by ploughing offset suitably by the reduced chemical impact later on? I would suggest that it was, but I think that argument differs depending on what soil you're on. We just mentioned how nice and friable our soil is. Mm. There are some soils which are so heavy that when you plough them up, they just plough up into these huge great lumps, which then bake out and they're just so difficult to knock down. I, I was expecting to come out. I remember following the plough, picking worms or you know, the plough coming out when we were draining the field and, and getting it all ready for winter. And the when you turned the soil over, it was this gorgeous, shiny um, sort of mound. Yeah, a furrow. <laughs> yeah, furrow. And it looked wonderful. And when you looked across the field, it was like the sea. It was like ripples. And this is like... Well, it's sort of just smashed, isn't it? It's a little bit, that's because we've had such a very dry summer that the, the soil is still, even though we've had a little bit of rain, it is very dry. Yeah. And in this field, it is, the soil is very light. You right. know, so that it's... it's so it would be a be clay soil. A clay, that. it's the clay bit that gives you that shine. And I can smell that smell yeah, the, from the, clay. But all, all, all ploughing, that's one of the things I love about ploughing is the smell of the soil. And it doesn't matter whether you're digging the garden or ploughing the field, the smell of it. And all soils, as you rightly say, smell different. Yeah. And subsoil smells different to topsoil. And it's just part of it. It, it evokes the traditions of ploughing and all the rest of it, the turning of the soil. So that, that, that's a, a very traditional part of it. But it's I think, your inner self, is it, Phil? Well, it is one of my favourite <laughs> occupations, Brian. I do. I have been heard to say this before. I do love that. But how can you? Because well, we're just going up and down. I know, but if you if you look at the action of the furrow turning the soil yeah. over, it is mesmeric, and you will never bore of looking at it. It is just something about turning it over, a start to the new year. It's the way the soil flows over the moldboard. It's it's just great. It's it's something that's gone on for hundreds, if not thousands, of years, 
in one form or another, the plough is the absolute epitome of agriculture from the word go. Whether you're using an ox plough, which is just a sort of lump of wood with a handle on it, or a sophisticated metal plough, the, the reasons for it are the same. So, on that note, can we have the Farmer Phil potted history of ploughing from day one, in a nutshell, 40. Well, it's, the potted history is that donkeys years ago, somebody came up with the idea of putting something in the ground and, and pulling a sort of furrow up it, a, a, a drill if you like, and it's very much the same today. But yeah. the point of it is, is you're turning over the weeds, but also you're adding air, is it? Yeah, you're breaking the soil up so it, it, it frees it up, it allows air into it, it recreates the soil structure if you like that it, if some soils a lot of soils if you leave them they just go down harder and harder and harder and it gets difficult for the crop to get its roots down through them and hence you want to lift them and aerate them a little bit um, and it allows the new crop to get its roots down because that after all is the key to a good crop if you if you can't get a good root system then you won't get a good crop of anything be it in the garden or in the field it's not the same as a rotavator, is it? No. A, a rotavator is, is a, a fairly brutal implement, and I mean we use the equivalent on the farm, but it is a mechanical means of chopping up or smashing up or both the soil into smaller particles. Yeah. The, the plough tends to plough it up. If it happens to break nicely into a nice friable result, fine but it might just as well on a stiff soil plough it up in huge great lumps which you might then attack with a, a rotavator or its equivalent to knock down. And so then the horse came along. Then the horse came <laughs> along. That Moving made, on. That made it rather easier. And you, you used to plough uh, usually with two horses yep. and it would usually have been a one furrow plough and the idea was that one man his two horses and his one plough could plough an acre a day. That's what my dad used to do. Absolutely right. Until the horses took off <laughs> and went through the hedge. <laughs> that was the, occasionally the problem that uh, the uh, authority of man over beast didn't always work. <laughs> so one acre a day. Per man, per plough. Right, we're just twirling now, listener. And so that was with one furrow. One furrow. But now, how has that moved on through the years? Well, that one furrow would probably have ploughed at a maximum of six inches deep, and it might have ploughed a furrow perhaps ten inches wide. Right. The plough that we're using, which is by no means the biggest that you'll come across, it, it's what I would describe as a, a medium-sized plough, is a five-furrow plough. Yeah. Um, and the furrows are ploughing, as we said, about 10 inches deep, but they can plough up to 18 or 20 inches wide if I want them to, so that's nearly twice the width. And we can also travel faster forwards because you wouldn't have asked a horse to plough other than at a walk whereas we're travelling at about five miles an hour, which would have been a jog for a... 5.3, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, 
the upshot is? The upshot is that we can get more done. How much more done? Well, given a largish field, we can fairly comfortably plough 25, 30 acres a day with, with this setup. The other thing that we've got is that we use what's called a reversible plough. So that I've got five furrows that plough one way, say left-handed, and then on the other side I've got another five furrows, which if I turn the plough over, will plough right-handed. Well, they didn't used to have to start at the beginning well, again, did they, they? What they used to have to do was that they had to plough in lands, which meant that you had cops and reams, so you ploughed the soil together in a cop, so that you'd go up one side and down the other, which would throw the two furrows up together. Right. And then you'd go round and round that until it got wide enough that you needed to make a new one. Right. And where the hole was, so where oh, yeah. you ploughed it out, that was called a ream. And so, so you'd end up with a sort of lumpy uh, field. Well, the art of ploughing was that your cop shouldn't be a lump. Right. Because it was a very um, skillful job to plough a cop because you split it. So you plough it out at half depth yeah. and then you plough it back in again at full depth so you've got a sandwich and in theory you can get it level. You're sort of a hairdresser. It is. <laughs> and I mean this is where we mentioned the other day ploughing matches and agricultural improvement societies. Yeah. It is that sort of skill which I'm afraid with modern machinery we um, have sort of bypassed mostly because of the time it takes to do it. Um, but it's that sort of skill which is what made a good ploughman. And you could, they, they took huge pride in being able to plough ruler straight and get it flat and get their reams just the right depth. And then the following year, they'd plough the reams in again. Right. So that the, the cops would be where the ream was and so on. But was that actually important to the standard of the crop? Not or was it a pride? Thing. Yeah, it was a mostly a pride thing. I mean, obviously there are practicalities with our sort of farming, but if we don't leave the field level, it can be difficult to harvest the following crop, so that we are trying to get it level and even. Yeah. And we're also trying to consolidate the soil to get it firm enough, so that, that from their point of view, it was the pride. And on a big farm, you might have had a lot of horses and ploughmen. I mean, the farm I worked on as a student, they had 200-odd horses altogether, and they used horses until 1966. So you've got a lot of people and horses farming two or 3,000 acres, and there was a lot of competition, either to plough the most or to plough the best. And you had good horses, you had bad horses, and all the rest of it. And to some extent, you see that today in the form of ploughing matches. Just as an aside, just explain to me the horsepower thing then. Well, horsepower as in one horse is not really comparable. But um, you say this has got so much horsepower and that's how much pulling power it's Yes, got. it is. It is not related to a multiple of the number of horses. It's just a measure. Oh. Sadly. I really thought that was it. Well, this tractor's nearly 200 horsepower, so Ooh. that I don't think <laughs> I don't think that we'd be looking at 200 horses pulling five furrows. I think Bess is a bit lame. <laughs> right, we're just twirling again. So now we're going to turn the plough up the other way, aren't we? Yeah. So first of all, this plough it narrows itself up. Did you see that it all crunches yeah. up? Then it turns over and then it widens itself back oh out. Oh, yeah, to the here width. we are, we're widening 
tell me first of all why we're ploughing this on the diagonal instead of straight and second of all what will happen to this field as soon as you've left it? Well first of all I get a lot of jip about how I plough a field <laughs> but you've probably noticed that the action of the plough especially a reversible plough I'm effectively moving all the soil to the left 18 isn't it? inches one way yeah so if I had a square field, I've got to plough it a different way once every four years. Otherwise, I'll pile all the soil up against one aspect of it. Now, the reason I plough at an angle to the way that we drill it is to try and make sure that I get it level. So I'm crossing the wheel marks of the previous crop. And so if you have a square, personally, each year I would start in the different corner in rotation and I actually record which way I plough a field so I get it right. And so is this a farmer Phil handy tip for all those other farmers out there? Well, Are you listening Andrew, Geek Farm Life? It might be but I took a lot of jip <laughs> when I first came to the area because they said oh farm me old and so he's ploughing a field his crazy angles but then I noticed that uh, so were they. <laughs> and they didn't make too much of a meal uh, of it, but they were. So it's the keeping up with the Joneses. Well, I, I, it, it is just a way of doing it, and I think we do try and get it flat, so that that's the idea. Now, I know, I know why you're here in the autumn. I think I know. It's because the soil is warm, and you want to get the crops in the ground so that they're there in the ground germinating during the winter, is that right? Partly. Win winter crops, winter wheat particularly, you can get much greater yield than some of the spring sown crops. Right. And it's the longer, in our country at any rate, the longer growing period gives you more yield potential. And so that's the reason. And the idea is to get the plants planted in good conditions and growing before the winter so they can then withstand the winter. We don't want to be trying to plant things during the winter. And I know from my own experience, being your wife, that ploughing is fairly intensive and you don't come home for tea until late. No. So it's a fairly rushed job. Yeah. So just explain to the listener, we're now ploughing this field, how intensive it is and what happens yeah, when you actually leave it? Well, obviously, as I'm ploughing it, I am at the mercy of the elements because if it comes to pour down with rain and I get my ploughed field too wet, then it takes a long, long time to dry out so that then we have to wait before we can plant it or drill it. Hang on, just got to the tree. So we're just going to make our way yeah. tree. So that ideally... Ooh. If the weather is nice and settled, yeah. I'll plough the field and then Kevin will come more or less straight in behind me and his tractor has got machinery to work the tilts down, work the field down and plant it all in one pass. So that he will go into the field and in one pass he'll do everything that needs to be done to it. Right. And once we've done that, it's then safe, it's weather tight again then. But Rob does Oh, he, if it's dry enough, we'll roll it after we've drilled it. Right. And that's partly to consolidate the soil. When it's dry, it tends to be fluffier. And it also gives us an opportunity to get the stones out of the way and pick some up and generally put it right so that when we come to combine it later on in the season, 
we don't get wazzled up around big rocks and stones that we've ploughed up because as you probably felt there's a lot of stone involved. There is a lot of stone involved and so the point is that you don't get too far ahead so that it rains on it and yet he's right there putting pressure on you to plant the crop. Yeah. And lastly what will go in this field? Uh, this will go into wheat. So it's a, a, another seed crop of Robigus winter wheat. So exactly the same, this will be its second year. It'll be its second year, and then next year we'll have a break crop and it'll be either peas or grass seed. Right. That's a lovely day, isn't it? Glorious. Absolutely fantastic. I did expect to be able to talk, as you tell me all the time, about the wildlife that you see, the buzzards that are swooping after the um, mice and the worms, but to be honest, there's not a sausage about. I did see a crow. Well, well, before you came, I did have half a dozen buzzards out here. No, I don't believe it. Well, they were. I'm afraid they were. But, well, uh, yeah, we got a few crows and a couple of pigeons. <laughs> the sky is blue. It's the 9th of October. Happy ploughing, Phil. Thank you very much. Phew, the cat really found that interesting. Listen. Go on now, a biter. <laughs> no, he's still asleep. He just moved one paw. That's the whole movement. Anyway, we're going to end with a worm cast from the Monty Worm. The Wiggly Worm Cast Podcast by Monty. A weekly fact on slow worms. The slow worm is found in a wide range of open habitats. It tends to shelter under stones. I found one with Richard under a sheet of corrugated iron on a sunny day. Thank you, Monty. And for our new listeners, make sure you subscribe. Use iTunes. That's the easiest way that I've found to subscribe. And then you can have your weekly dip automatically downloaded onto your computer or your iPod. So you can listen wherever you are. Excellent. Just like Alison, who has the computer outside of the bathroom. <laughs> while she's listened to it, we're scrubbing away in the bath. <laughs> Too much information there. <laughs> See you next week. Bye-bye. Bye from me.